So Jason Hardrath, you may have heard of him before, but from 2018 to 2021, he went on a mission to become the very first person to hold 100 FKTs, which are known as the fastest known times. And so one of these FKTs actually includes all of Washington's 100 highest peaks, also known as the Bulgers, which I used to live in the PNW. Incredible, man. Like that is an incredible feat. And he did that in under 51 days. Yep. 50 days, 23 hours. Yeah. Okay. So we'll come back to that one because I'm super interested about the Bulgers. And he did all this, by the way, and we'll get into more FKTs that he's done, but he's teaching right now. I mean, he just got out of class. Look at him right there. (laughs) He just got out of class. So he's still teaching in Oregon down in by Klamath Falls, I believe, right? Yep. Yeah. Small community outside of Klamath Falls. Yeah. So I'm sure, you know, a lot of these feats have inspired some of your students and we'll get into some of that a little bit later, but Jason also this year just completed the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam and beat the FKT there by climbing 122 mountain peaks across three states in 39 days. Yep. Yep. Uh, another okay. one, another one just under, just under the, uh, the day mark. It was 39 days, 23 hours and 44 minutes. So 16, Let's minutes, go. 16 minutes under 40 days. Like literally so- it was just like racing out from the final peak. Like this, this can happen. Ah. Dude, I saw, I saw that picture of you at the trailhead, just like laying there. I think it was in Montana, it, right? Yeah. Yep, yeah. finished in Montana. <laughs> so, so freaking cool, man. And so, yeah, so I first heard of Jason. He was on a podcast a few years back, and he had just – he was talking about the Rainier Infinity Loop, which, again, is something that it's just – it blows my mind because I climbed Rainier car to car. That was 20 and a half hours, dude. But not only did he climb it one way, he ran around the thing and then climbed it two separate ways, right? North, south or something like that. So you go up one side and down the other, you come all the way around, you go up that same side again and down again, and then you come around the other way, basically drawing a giant figure eight with the summit of the mountain at the center or an infinity loop. Yeah. So wild, dude. So wild. So I remember hearing him on that. I'm like, this guy's insane. And then that same summer, I believe he did the Bulger record. So anyway, welcome to the podcast, Jason. How are you doing today? Today was a good day. Good day with the kiddos. Good day with the students, you know, passing on little tidbits of knowledge and wisdom from the 122 peaks of this summer, telling a few stories, inspiring them, getting into the flow of things. Yeah, I can't complain. Today's today's pretty good. It's a good good day to be Jason Hardrath. But when you teach, how are you integrating some of those stories into into your students' lives and and how do they receive them? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it, you know, a lot of the core of what started me down this this journey in the first place. I mean, for those who can't see any visuals, I'm sitting in my PE office with 150 plus bib numbers hanging on the wall behind me with medals right. and plaques from different teams I was a part of. And those are hanging in my, my PE office here at the school. So they've started many a conversation with students about making decisions and dedication and training and, and living a life worth living. So it comes through in all sorts of ways, both in the classroom and out the classroom. I think one of the things I love about it is I feel like you can only truly teach what you become because in a way you have to, you have to become a role model of what it is you, you care to show a person and teach a person. Yes. And that authenticity where when we dig into something difficult, we dig into a challenge, we do an undertaking that maybe with, you know, a teacher that really didn't care. It would be like, well, this is dumb. I don't want to do it because you don't care about it. And the teacher's response would be like, well, you just have to do it because I said so. Or, uh, well, fine, we won't do it because it doesn't matter. Um, It's like me. I can be like, no, like we're going to lean into it. And here's why it matters. And here's this whole world of possibility that's out there. And it's, you know, you're, you're, 
preparing for opportunities you can't even see yet. And I can speak all this authentically and with stories to back it up because I go out and I live it. And it's not some distant, you know, has been story right. from my golden years. It's like, yeah, this summer, here's, here's the newspaper article that just got published about it. Mm -hmm. I love, I love making sure that the local paper runs a little article for my, my yeah. students to see it um, right. because it means so much to them. It means the world because they want the adults in their lives to be living out these wild dreams and making stuff happen. And that, that, you know, pursuing goals is possible and to be able to sort of embody that and then have that be integrated in both personal ways, you know, person to person with a student that's drawn to a certain thing in a certain moment. And I can have that teachable moment off to the side with, and just in the general flow of like what I introduced the students to, I fundraised for a 40 foot wide, 12 foot high rock wall to be put in my gym. So it's like every kid that comes through my elementary PE program spends years getting used to climbing on an indoor wall. And that means, you know, as an adult, like maybe they have a whole middle season of life where they don't get to like have the reins of their own life and choose something like that, but they bump into it later as an adult and they're a, they can go, oh, I used to love that as a kid. I could do that. Um, and I, I still remember early in my teaching career, I was probably 22, 23 years old, second, third year teacher. And some perfectly healthy adults were at Smith Rock, which, you know, for those who don't know, it's like the birthplace of sport climbing in North America. It's like one of the most famed uh, North American rock climbing sites. And these people clearly didn't know that. They stepped out, but they were perfectly healthy and fit looking. Not like something was horribly wrong with them or they had really let themselves go. And they like were astounded at these rock climbers climbing on the rocks, just wow. And all this conversation around just amazement. And at the end of all the amazement, they finished with, oh, I could never do that. And that just hit me, hit me like a brick in the chest. It was just like, oh, why was that their final answer? It's like, there's not anything holding them back. Like they're, they could go hire a guide or an instructor or take a course and be doing this tomorrow. But instead their response was, I could never. And it just struck me in the moment. It's like, it's because they didn't have a positive anchoring memory with it as a kid or anything similar. So it just seems so foreign and so scary that their answer was, yeah, that whole realm of human endeavor is off limits to me. It's scary. I couldn't do it. And I'm like, okay, my, my new goal as a teacher is to give kids these foundational experiences and a meaningful narrative around these pursuits of, of differing interests so that when they step into adult life, they can recall a, a fond memory. Like we have skateboards in my classroom now, bikes in my classroom. We do the rock wall, like all this different stuff. So whatever they bump into as an adult, my thought is like, they'll be able to go, I could do that. Like I could pick that back up. I used to enjoy that instead of, oh, I could never, that's too scary. That's too dangerous. And that's kind of like my low key mission um, in how I run my classroom. Absolutely incredible. So number one, like the credibility that you have at being a teacher and doing these things at, mostly during the summer when you have a, this giant time off, right? Uh, you're kind of using that also as a springboard to show your students what's possible, especially coming from a small town, right? They might think that it's not possible, but when they see it face to face, they come face to face with it, with their gym teacher, their PE teacher, right? Now it all of a sudden becomes tangible and real. Yep. Yeah. When you're talking about these, these rock climbers, you don't want your students to grow up to be like that. So you're like, I'm gonna anchor these these memories into them and make sure that they know that they can do this too. Bingo. Yeah, no, that that sense of empowerment that that they have that positive memory to call on when they bump into it later in life, for sure. That's to me, I think that's so key for how we process. Like, you know, we can we can all think of stuff in our own adult life where something that's foreign to us seems really scary and so unknown and we hesitate to step yeah. into it. 
or stuff where we had lots of foundational experiences as a kid. We're just like, oh, of course I can do that. That's not nothing. That's important. And so, you know, I pay attention to that. That's one of the things I focus on. Extremely, extremely inspiring. So would you say your students are, are part of a motivation for doing some of these bigger objectives or what is your, what is your why around some of that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can talk about this for hours. A big part of my why, I mean, obviously there's the car accident portion of my story where mm -hmm. I got ejected from the vehicle and, and anytime something traumatic happens like that, especially when people tell you, yeah, you're done being adventurous, you're done being athletic, you're done, that part of your life's over. There's this sort of personal gauntlet of reclaiming personal power, reclaiming that like I, I am in charge of what is or isn't in my life. I'm going to, I'm going to be unrelenting until I'm back to doing some version of what I love. Um, so there was this personal gauntlet, especially early on coming out of that car accident in 2015. Um, and then obviously, like I mentioned all the bib numbers and medals on the wall behind me, that was in my younger life before the car accident, a lot of that self-testing self-growth what's possible for me. And I think that's an important exploration for all of us to go through. Cause if you don't go out and like test your own limits, both, both physically and in the sense of like you question what could be possible within reality for like, what are the edges of myself? Like just how much can I, I, I actualize a dream and then what's like magical thinking. Um, and like to go out and find those actual edges of like, oh, like I can go out and break records or I can go out and launch a film. I can go out and talk passionately and have others like care about and be impacted by what it is I have to say, right? You can go test the edges of, of that reality for yourself. And I think that's important how are you going to turn around and help people and lift people and encourage other people into what's possible for them? If you've never remotely tested your own possibilities, you're going to sell them short because yeah. you've sold yourself short. You don't know any better. Right. Um, right. You're going to, you're going to, the, the advice you give is going to be advice that tells them to play it safe and take a step back and don't take the risk. You just can't help it. It's all, it's all, you know, um, I mean, unless, you know, a person has like that encounter with the self where they're like, Ooh, actually I, I steered wrong, which is rare, right? They have that like, mm, no, go do the thing because I regret that I didn't. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like, that's a big part of it. But beyond that for me, especially now, like I've gone through this personal gauntlet almost twice kind of because of the reset right. the accident. I reached this place, especially the Bulgers, the Washington 100 tallest was kind of a big turning point where it's like, once I sealed the deal on that, which felt like a kind of a master expression, like maybe, maybe that's, the Jason Hardrath masterpiece was being the first person to put together those hundred peaks in a single season. I don't know. Maybe I have one more great one left in me, but that one, like impacting the Pacific Northwest mountaineering community and the FKT community, like adding that kind of changing how that group of mountains was seen. Um, and then seeing like this year uh, it was just Nathan Longhurst, the, the kid who I can call him a kid. He's 23 now, but at the time he was 21 and the youngest to finish yeah. the list. Uh, he climbed 65 of the peaks with me. And so cleaned up the rest on his own the same season and became the second person to climb all of the Bulgers in a single season. And now just this year, two guys did them all biking in between, right? So sort of adding that next chapter, that next iteration of, well, we've seen people do self-supported human power uh, biking connections in Colorado and in Idaho and in these other states that have peak lists. But it was like, oh, well now Jason showed that these peaks can be climbed in a season. Can uh -huh. they be climbed in a season, all human powered in between? So two more people finished them in a season biking in between. And then one more college kid went through and became the new youngest finisher of the list and climbed them all in 85 days. So it's kind of like, it's, 
to see it like having this trickling effect on how people are approaching that project is super cool and meaningful for me. Um, Cause yeah. I kind of wondered if it wouldn't be sort of a, a little bit of a field of dreams thing. So like impacting yeah. the community is big to me, but now it's also, you know, and it's something that's always been a part of it is circling back and telling my students the stories, circling back with the wisdom, the intuitions um, that come out of having these experiences with self and these experiences in the mountains and, and now having permission to speak on occasions like this and to speak in front of audiences of two or 400 people while showing a film, like incredible experiences to, to like rescue wisdom from the past and speak it in a way, in a medium that people can understand and care about who are interested in the same things as me and to sort of invite other people into this sort of eternal ongoing spirit of sport and spirit of the mountains and the the meaning and purpose that can give them for putting their lives together in the same way it's given me meaning and purpose for putting my life together and it's like that to me is the real reason it's like doing the rocky mountain grand slam project at this point mm -hmm. in my career at this point in my life like of course it was cool it was an amazing experience i love being out in the mountains i love being in nature i love testing myself physically and battling with the struggle um and finding out the kind of you know man I am inside. Like, I love that testing, but I knew all along that I'm doing it. I do so that I can teach. I become so that I can inspire and I aim high so that I can lift others. Like I already knew what really mattered about this project is the conversations I have after the project, who I help with, with the fact that I've done the project. Um, so mm -hmm. my, my why is tied up a lot in these teachable moments, in these conversations and what good does it have for the other humans around me, because I can imagine much worse versions of Jason Hardrath that could have come into existence. Jason Hardrath that spiraled with drugs and alcohol, who were you know negative and downtrodden and pissed off at the world and ready to hurt and hate on others. Like I can imagine that guy. Like uh, he could have absolutely come to exist. It's inside me for sure. But because I found this thing that was meaningful, that I got to chase, that I got to express myself through, that I got to find meaning, that I got to have some importance and some value to the people around me because I, I pursued it as passionately as I have. It's like, man, that's put me in a really good place in life where I care to keep myself together in a way that's good for the people around. And it's like, I want to hand that off to the other, you know, some future Jason Hardrath that if they don't find a, a similar thing for themselves they're going to spiral and struggle. Um, mm. And I think that that is it's one of the most important things we can do in our lives is turning what we've done and how we've lived into something useful for those who come next um, and something useful for those alongside us. And yeah, that's a big part. That's a big part of my why now. Wow. Well, first of all, this has already been the easiest podcast to do because you give the best answer. <laughs> I've asked like two two questions and like this, these have been awesome answers, dude. So thanks for making me look good too. <laughs> no, this, this is great. So, you know, what's really funny, man, is, is when you were talking about that and you're basically saying like, you know, when you're in here teaching these students lessons, you have to have walked that lesson in order to teach it essentially, right? You no, know, you're not just that teacher that can beat their ass in badminton. Right. So for whatever reason, it's always the teachers that are always just killers at badminton. I don't know what it is about it, man. <laughs> I may but or may not, not be that guy as well. <laughs> okay. okay. There you go. There you go. But what I'm saying is you're not, you know, you're not just that guy. You also have this huge life outside of, of the school as well. And when I was working pro and probation and I was teaching folks there how to integrate back into society and I was seeing kind of coworkers that were still involved in a lot of alcohol that was their coping mechanism but then they're telling our probation and parolees they can't drink alcohol and this is why 
And I'm like watching that and I'm like, dude, you don't even like, it wasn't legit to me, which is what a big reason why I stopped partaking in that type of stuff. So I understand that completely, like walking the walk. You touched on it briefly, but you, you push yourself out there in the mountains and you're kind of trying to find that edge. Do you feel like you found that edge or do you feel like you're still searching for that? Is that like a lifelong thing? I think vision quests are, are important at all seasons of life. I think revisiting places of deep testing, deep suf suffering, frontier adventures for our own interests and skill sets that we've accumulated. I think they'll continue to be a part of my life. I do, like I mentioned earlier, I do want the contribution when all things are weighed, like the significance of the project to me and the difficulty of the project, the the way it was sort of this perfect expression of all these skill sets I, I'd accumulated in the 99 previous FKT records that I'd broken. I just wonder if that wasn't sort of a masterpiece work, a masterwork in my in the in the quiver in the portfolio of Jason Hardrath. I mean, I think I'll continue reflecting on just how meaningful and important and continue to see that through different lenses for the rest of my life. So I don't know. I, I absolutely think I'm going to keep finding edges to test myself on. I guess it's just a, a questioning of like, will anything be quite like that was again? And I don't know. I think also what I was mentioning is there's this like turning of the chapter where within each adventure now, I also notice myself wanting to be the teacher in the sense that it's like, okay, I'm this experienced adventure. I've done you know, international trips, climbed international peaks, set FKTs overseas. I've done all across domestically here in the States on every kind of terrain. I've, I've done these speed records. Like I want to invite other young athletes that maybe certain aspects of their skill set is just enough lacking that they don't have the confidence to launch into it themselves. Or maybe they've never traveled internationally or don't quite mm -hmm. have the budget for it or whatever. I want to like build out a grand adventure that for me still seems epic. You know, maybe it's not bulgers where I'd be like worried about the other person not making it if they're not, you know, completely on my level, but a situation where it's like still fairly high stakes, like a very real endeavor, a very real pursuit, but then inviting someone into the experience with me mm -hmm. in hopes that they have a transformative experience and like live a very different life and have a very different sense of self and belief in what they can do going forward. And to do that mm -hmm. for another person that's like already kind of up on this leading edge of what they're doing, um, what yeah. they're aiming at. Um, that that seems way more meaningful and important than just going out and searching for my own next like proving grounds. So yeah, maybe that's just the nature of when you've sought something so hard, when you've pursued it with such dedication, you finally like manifest the thing. You're kind of like, well, now I want, I want this experience to happen for others. Like I want others to get to have this journey and to feel like I feel about the world and about life and about the importance of helping people. I think completing that project made me a more generous person, you know, cause it's like, I went, I went to battle and found what I was made of. And now it's like, well, I don't, I don't need to waste so much time and attention trying to figure out what I'm made of. It's like, now I can just be like, well, here's how I can show up for others. And if stuff starts to go sideways while we're in a very situation, I know I can manage me and help you. And so I feel safe stepping into these extreme situations and creating these, you know, amazing adventure experiences because I've like walked that road myself. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you, you said it was the 23 year old that was with you on the Bulgers. Do you feel like you kind of gave some of that transformative experience to him as well? Yeah, no, he, he said as much, even when we were in the middle of it, he's like, I had no idea that I could, I could work like this, do work, you know, perform like yeah. this day after day sure. after day after day. <laughs> and then he went on, he went on Nathan Longhurst. Yeah. People should look him up.
He went on to climb the entire SPS list, the Sierra Peak section list of 247 Never. peaks. Oh. Yeah, it's it's one of the oldest peak lists in the USA. 247 peaks of the Sierra. Um, and he did it in like 130 days. Um, so like carried the knowledge and the belief in self and like went and manifested a project I could never do as a school teacher because it's too long to fit in my summer. So he went out and like did something that was this radical, cool experience that like I could, you know, carrying the torch in a way that I never could have. Um, yes. And we actually went down and uh, you mentioned the Rainier Infinity Loop. I thought that was oddly serendipitous because that was that for me was a super transformative you want to talk about spiritual yeah. transformation i've talked in previous podcasts about how the rainier infinity loop if if i hadn't done that record and battled through that whole experience to to chase that speed record i don't know if mm. i would have ever done the bulgers like it was that much of a transformative breakthrough in like what i believed a i was breakthrough of. i love yeah. that you're you're using the word breakthrough because that is exactly what it is it's like these things that we do that all of a sudden it just breaks all your limitations off like shackles right and now you have a longer runway just to launch and so the rainier infinity loop was that for you huge for me Huge for me. I think if no Rainier Infinity Loop, then no Bulgers. Um, I think it's that significant. Wow. Well, he and I partnered back up. I invited him down, you know, because, you know, he's still young. He's 23 now. He's 21 at the time we did the Bulgers. He's 23 now. And this March, we we teamed up and I, you know, pitched some brands to get enough money to like cover his flights um, so that he could afford to come down. And we put an Infinity Loop on Pico de Orizaba, the tallest volcano in North America. And we're actually going to be launching a film here soon about October 1st, we're going to launch a, a film about okay. establishing the first international infinity loop on a, on a peak over 18,000 feet tall, um, um, which was just a, a wild experience full of hate and sickness and struggle and mm -hmm. team dynamic, you know, him being 23 and at the peak of his conditioning that he's ever been in right. life and still seeking that big, like breakthrough experience. And me like struggling with hate and having, having had some recent health issues and not quite feeling right coming into it and then just that the way the human friction developed over the course of that effort together because of those different places of the of our two you know I, for lack of a better term our two characters at that moment in time and i think it tells a pretty meaningful story um stuff we all struggle with right like how how do we be a part of high functioning teams how do we step into the unknown and believe in each other and how do you navigate those difficult decisions when what's the right call here is the right call to tell tell someone you don't get to live your dream or is the right call to do whatever it takes to try to you know help the other person see it through even when you're racing a clock so yeah i think it i think it tells a meaningful tale beyond just hey two guys did something cool in the mountains um and that's important to me um, i mean if yeah. you know anybody that's listening to this this long hopefully understands that it's it's about a lot more than a name on a record for me. Yeah, love it. You you talked a little bit about like the human friction when it comes to like having partners on the mountain. What do you look for when you are looking for a partner? Because I'm, I'm sure you don't take that lightly to to bring someone into the mountains with you into some of those situations. W what is it that you look for in a partner? And like, what is it that, who do you vibe with the best? Like what kind mm. of personality? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, to steal a little bit of how Simon Sinek articulates this. Mm -hmm. You're always looking at two two dynamics. You're looking at trust and performance. And you know, obviously I have to choose from pretty high performers, people with pretty deep right. experience, not just in like technical mountain skills, uh, but also deep experience in like managing themselves in bad weather, in like bear territory. People who have like managed like those fears of being in the outdoors, people that 
can execute on glaciers or on rock, like a variety of skills, but also they have to be like ultra endurance athletes. Like they don't have to, they have to know how to move for 22 out of 24 hours and keep themselves (laughs) properly fueled and fed while doing that and still be able to execute all the necessary Mm -hmm. life or death skills um, Mm -hmm. when the, when the terrain presents itself. So it's like, uh, it's kind of a narrow band, you know, maybe that's an understatement of the year. Uh, It's kind of a narrow band of the population that I can choose from. Yeah. So like, especially if I'm like, Hey, we're doing this, you know, uh, the Rocky mountain grand slam. Uh, there was someone that wanted to join me and it was like, well, okay, let's go out and kind of test if we move well together. And he moved really well, but the accumulated time, you know, I waited up for him at different points. I kind of went like, all right, I'm going to move. Like I'm going to want to move for all of these 122 peaks, like the pace I want to move at. And we'll just see how it goes. And the amount of time I ended up waiting up for him over the course of the day, added up to about 90 minutes. Um, Mm, it's like, you know, 90 minutes per, per peak for 122 peaks is a pretty significant margin. And do you really want to like live under the emotional load of knowing that time is yard sailing out and you're the one being waited on for for 40 days? Like, how's that going to be psychologically for 40 days to constantly being like, Oh, don't hold him up. Don't hold him up. Don't hold him up. Don't hold him up. It's like, that's probably not the vibe we want on this team. Um, And he, he came to the same conclusion himself. He's like, yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm quite in a place where I'm ready to do this, especially for this long of time. If it was like five days or something, like we could gut it out. And I'm like, I totally agree. We should do something in the future together because this is close enough that on a shorter endeavor, it would make sense. But for something this serious and this long, it doesn't quite match up enough. Like you're a great guy. You're amazing in the mountains, but it's just not quite the right fit. And so we said no to it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's like, there's that performance aspect, especially if it's a pretty narrow band, if like we're supposed to perform as equals. Obviously, I'll ex- I'll expand that band a little bit in the situations I've talked about where there's that chance for like mentorship and like mm-hmm. altering sure. someone's course to believe in themselves more. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna be willing to embrace a little more of a mismatch in that situation um, because the whole point is that they have they get to have a, a breakthrough in a in a context where it's meaningful, uh, like a whole new anchoring memory for themselves of what they can do. On the trust side of stuff, it's people who've put themselves together value the people around them to value the experience people who are like growth mindset growth oriented not achievement oriented like if all the Mm. person can talk about is like how cool they are and what they've done and how accomplished they and how they're you know a badass it's like would i really want to sit in the mountains for you know yeah 30 hours and listen to this. How is the conversation different with those types of people, like achievement versus growth-minded people? So uh, the growth-minded people are talking about what they're trying to learn. They're talking what they're interested and passionate about. They're talking uh, about things excitedly. They're they're sort of open to new ideas. They're they're looking for experience and sharing it with others. The, the more achievement-oriented people, it's kind of like, look at my resume. Here's why I'm stronger than so-and-so. Here's why I'm better than so-and-so. So-and-so mm-hmm. sucks because, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's just when, when the going gets rough, what I've found is the people who come unglued emotionally in that time, because stuff isn't going their way and stuff isn't going right. And things are kind of, you know, like things are coming unglued is those people that want it to be this perfect, like, look at what I did. They can't, like, they can't manage the moments where it's not going to turn, where it looks like it's not going to turn into a, hey, look what I did when the going gets tough and you start to suffer. They fold 
and the people who are looking for growth, they're looking for a personal challenge, they're looking for an experience with other people. Like they want to lean into the I was just going to get say real. That they want the to, cause that's the yeah. whole point they're there is like, oh, we're going to our edges. Like, guess what? We found our edges. This is why we're here. As opposed to, oh, this was supposed to be like another, another tick list for the resume that I could brag about. Like, it's just a different, it's a different mindset and it leads to different behaviors in the moments that matter. And wow. so I just don't have interest in, in people. Plus it's like, I don't know, maybe like some other people, I just don't enjoy being in the room with those people that much Um, that mm. that's how they see their world. Again, like if it works for them, like, great. Like, I don't want to bash on them, but as far as who I'm going to invite to go spend multiple hours in the mountains, I'm going to, I'm going to aim for the people that like, just want to embrace the experience. Oh man, you articulated that so well. I've never thought of it that way, but you're totally right. I love how you said lean into those edge experiences. Like when you're super tired, you can't feel like you can't freaking move another muscle or weather rolls in, or, you know, you get a lot more wind than you were thinking at the summit or whatever it is. Yeah. Just being able to cope with that in a way. What has been your most visceral experience on these mountains? Like most intense thing that maybe, maybe someone wouldn't think of. I feel like it might come from the Rainier infinity loop. I feel like you were talking about some intense things there in that podcast once. Hmm. Most visceral and raw experience. Do you just want a, do you want a proud moment or a troubled moment? I would love both. Let's see. Troubled moment. So when I did Oregon's five highest, this was pretty early, reasonably early in my FKT experience. And so I was still kind of like testing myself and pushing myself. So I was doing this thing self-supported. No, I had a support crew. There were people meeting me, but they weren't out on course. Like I was, I was by myself. I was solo, but I did have a crew that I got to meet at different places where the trail intersected road and Oregon's five highest. You're linking up the three sisters, uh, Jefferson peak and Mount hood in Oregon. And Jefferson is the most technical. So I decided to do a traverse over Jefferson to save time. Cause normally you go up and then back down the same route and then kind of have to do this half circ of the of the mountain. And I'm like, I'm just going to climb straight over. Like I'm going to gamble that I can navigate the terrain. Um, even though like, there's not a lot of, uh, writing out there about people who do surprise, surprise, it turned into a bad experience. And I'm just out there making these serious high consequence rock climbing moves with these like boulders and rocks that are essentially like glued in by mud. And it's just like, this is not where I should, this is, this is bad. And, you know, occasionally like I'm tumbling stuff and watching it fall into the crevasses below. And it's just like, it's like full on. And it's like every movement is just meticulous. And like your life depends on how you balance every little bit of your weight. And it was just hours of that, hours of it. And I just remember being in that moment. It takes a lot to move me from being in type two fun. Like I can be in the world of suffering. I can be bonked, dehydrated. Um, It can be hot out and I can just be like, this is sick. I'm glad to be here. But that moment of being in that just absolute maxed out alarm systems, like every little movement matters so meticulously in such dangerous terrain that was just such complete shit that, yeah, that pushed me. That pushed me over that edge. That was on the border of misadventure for sure. And it was, it's something I look back on and just be like, don't put yourself in situations like that again. Like when it feels wrong, you turn around and you go ahead and eat the time and you go back and you, you do it the safer way. But yeah, down climbing that, that kind of North, Northeast aspect. Jefferson was just, whew, man, like you want to talk about just like, I broke down in tears just a couple of times thinking like, I might not pull this off. Like this is really? so much on the mountain, so much on my edges, like so much at my edges. 
that it's like, I might not pull this off. I might not come down because of where I've gotten myself and, you know, uh, managed to stick with it and get it done and come out the other end alive. Uh, but yeah, I walked away and I remember looking over my shoulder back up at what I down climbed and just being like, yeah, never, never again, never again. And so, yeah, that one, that one is one that was troublesome. It was definitely like a, a learning experience. There was a bit of, a bit of that I got lucky. Um, right. You know, as as well as I think I executed with my route finding and choosing like the least risk positions and moves and like sides of ridges or, you know, putting features below me that I might have been able to catch myself on if like a rock had blown out or something. Like, even with all that, it was still felt like there was a bit of luck involved with how that one panned out. So right. that, that's one that it's like, never again. Then as far as something, ooh, actually, I'm going to tell a story I've never told on a podcast before. A proud moment that started as a misadventure was actually like way back. This is, this is, I was doing FKTs already, but not, not super deep in. And some friends and I were in Utah and had never been to Utah before. So it was kind of fresh to the whole slot Canyon right. experience. And it was like, Ooh, this is so sick. Like these canyons are amazing. And we see this hand line going down into a Canyon that just looked like super cool. And you know, this disclaimer, you never, never, never go into a canyon. You don't know every single thing about. So if someone's listening to this, you don't go down slot canyons without knowing everything about the canyon and its name and what's needed to get through it to the most minute detail of, you know, how many feet of rope you need, what the anchors are made out of. Like, you know, all the details. And we go down this thing with zero oh. knowledge, just like, well, there's a hand line. Like, it looks kind of fun. Like, this is interesting. And it just keeps luring us down. Where it's like there's some interesting obstacles and some stimming above, you know, big drop-offs, but it's like that perfect width where you're just so you're just jamming along, stimming with your back on one wall, feet on the other, hands on either side, feet on either side. Occasionally we had to do a couple of complex like partner moves around silos, which is where it gets wider, but it's kind of bowl shaped. So you can kind of mm -hmm. lean into each other and work your way around. And we just keep going and going and getting lured deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing. And it's just like scary at some points, but also just kind of like fun, like right in that balance. And so we keep getting sucked down and down and down. Well, we're like thinking we're almost through this thing and, you know, we're running, kind of running out of daylight. So it's like, oh, we're so close. Like you can kind of see where it, you can clearly see that it's going to, the rock is going to separate and we'll be out of the slot canyon. But then we hit the crux of the canyon. And it was this, um, I later came to find out basically a 511 off width, which even at my best, I could, I don't think I could climb it. If you gave me a hundred tries with protection, right? Put me on a rope. I don't think I could climb this sandy, slightly wet 511 off width crack. E even if you gave me a hundred tries or a thousand tries. So it's like, here we are, you know, no gear, no ropes. We've done thousands of feet of like down climbing into this Canyon. Well, maybe not thousands, but a thousand feet probably of down climbing into this canyon deeper and deeper with stimming over sometimes 80 feet below us in the bottom of the canyon. But it was just, you know, like I said, that, that right, right width where you felt comfortable. And there would oftentimes be little chokes at the bottom where it made you feel safe. Cause the, the, the height you were at would have a little bit of a shelf to it. So we, here we are, we're stuck at this crux and we'd just done this like 50 foot kind of heinous sandy down climb stimming across the wall and it was just this moment where it's like holy shit we're stuck and you know that there was no way the two people that were with me were gonna we're gonna up climb it like they'd, they they had been much more at their limits just with the down climbing process than i was and so i just start replaying every single problem every single crux that we'd successfully down climbed every every down climb every silo 
the ways we had to squeeze through different things or climb above certain things or work up or down the canyon, either to the canyon floor or up, you know, like I said, sometimes we were 80 feet off the ground and just like replaying in my head, like every, every sequence and every move. And I'm like, okay, I think I can up climb this canyon. And, you know, with the clock ticking, it's like, you know, the sun is already like low enough in the horizon that the canyon, right. Slot canyons are pretty narrow. Um, it's already kind of getting dark in the, in the slot canyon, but it's like, okay, I know sunsets at least, you know, an hour away. Can I up climb everything we just down climbed uh, for the last few hours together and get out before dark? And so I set off and it starts off with just like, like I said, like 40 or 50, it might even have been 60 feet that there was a rappel anchor at the top of it. So you could tell most people who do this canyon in an intelligent way, they hook in a rope and rappel that section that we had down climbed. And so yeah. it was this like bad angle, kind of like negatively where my feet had to be higher than my mm -hmm. body um, with feet on one wall, back on the other wall. And so I had to just like arm press behind me and slide my back up the wall, like inch by inch, four inches at a time, four inches, just like pressing for all I'm worth, like get the feet stuck on the wall where I'm sure that they're not on sand and then press up and again, press up and take a step and press up and take a step and press up. And so I'm just like grunting and fighting my way up this and I you know, traversing and going through the silos that I'd had, to, that I'd had others with me to solve. Right. So silo gets wide where you could fall in and fall to the bottom of the Canyon. And so having to work across those silos by just like extending my body super sideways, um, you know, not completely perpendicular, but like quite off angle with hands on one wow. side and feet extended to the other side. And I'm up climbing and I get to this one point that we'd easily slid down because it was sort of like you just would sort of get yourself wedged in and then exhale and release your pressure on the walls a bit. And it was sandy. And so you could just kind of slide down it like a fireman slides down a pole. So just kind of slip, slither your way down. And I mm -hmm. get back to this and luckily it's at the bottom of the canyon, this kind of crux on the way out. And I'm bypassing a ton of stuff, the other cruxes and other problems. But basically it's this, it's an off width going the other way where I have to like figure out how to wedge my body into this sandy crack, this odd angle and like arm bar on one side and like kind of create a leg bar uh, below to like get friction with my heel and my knee and just like grinding my skin into the rock. And I fall out and I try again and I fall out. And I try again and I fall to the sand. I think I made it as high as like 10 feet up this 20 foot climb and pop out and fall all the way to the sand at the bottom. You know, luckily it was like soft sand. So I'm like, okay, each of these times, but I'm like, man, I'm burning through a lot of energy. I'm at the edge of daylight. Like it's getting pretty seriously dark in the Canyon now. And I just kind of go, okay, like this is every athletic thing I've done in my life pales in comparison to this moment. Like this, this is the real moment. I am trying to save my friends' lives because there's no promise anybody walks by here tomorrow or the next day. This is this is the do or die right here. And so I peel my shirt off because like I'm like, okay, maybe if I can feel the rock like digging into my skin, I can get just that little bit more friction and a little bit more rock feel and actually get up this thing. And so like I peel my shirt off and like just grind my skin into the rock as I like slither my way up this sandy off width and just like pressing for all I'm worth into my feet and my knees and my body and wedging my arms. And, you know, I finally pull through the top and just like the skin is just ripped off like half of my back, like just kind of like <laughs> down to like red raw bloody skin and, you know, rip my shorts open and, you know, still have a bit of Canyon left, but it's like, I knew that was like the final 
this yeah. is the move that matters. And so at this point, I'm just exhausted out of my mind because I'd already run like 11 miles that morning doing like an easy slot canyon loop that I did research. And we'd been out there for so many hours and I like hadn't really brought water or snacks with me. So I'm like bonking out of my mind. It's getting dark. And so I just like bounce my way. I can remember just like being sort of helpless to not just bounce off the walls of the canyon and like rub my shoulders raw, like leaning against it. Cause I was just so like exhausted and out of gas after having just grind my way, ground my way up that final crux and everything that came before it. And I pull up that final fixed line, kind of cursing at it, that final fixed line that had lured us yeah. down, lured us down into this canyon and it's pitch black at this point. And so I know I, I'd recalled that this giant sandstone monolith that we'd walked up, there were some cliffs. So I like, it's pitch black, like no moon. I think there were stars out if I remember right, but not enough to make much, like there wasn't enough light to really tell, like, is that a drop off in front of me or is that like the path? So I like picked up handfuls of rocks and just would like toss them out in front of me and listen to them bounce down the slab because it was an angle. Um, so I just listened to them bounce and then I'd toss one and wait, toss another. Oh, no, don't go there. That's a drop off. Um, so I just kind of like work my way down with like radar by throwing pebbles <laughs> in the dark and finally, <laughs> finally get all the way out to flat ground and go get help. And luckily there's some people who are willing to drive me out to get service, to call search and rescue. And it ends up being a whole operation to get my friends out. Basically, they had started stimming before sundown. Like they were just sitting there stimming in the canyon above this choke point where they had a little bit of a ledge to sit on, but it wasn't flat. And then their feet were on a little bit of a ledge, but that also wasn't flat. And by the time they got towed out, it was, the sun was coming up. Oh my. So they were in just pitch black, claustrophobic. Pitch black all night. I mean, as soon as search and rescue got notified, well, I yelled at them when I got out. Like I was like, I made it out. I'm going for help. So they knew like I'd gotten out successfully and that I was alive. And then as soon as search and rescue got activated, I'm like, I'm going back up there. Like, I'm going to like hang a light on a rope over the edge, like just lower it from as close as I can get. So like they have something to, something to look at some way to, to know help is on the way and company. And so hung out through the rest of the night until help came, you know, the whole list, right? Like cash in the whole list of FKTs, all of the bib numbers on the wall behind me, like all of change out all of that, being able to get out of that Canyon and, and save my friends from our stupid mistake proudest moment, most athletic achievement. Like that, that was the moment that really, really mattered. Um, wow. So yeah, that one, you know, nothing to do with FKTs or breaking records. Don't go down slot canyons. Obviously, you know, the guy who right. drove me out, he's like, you're an idiot. But also it, it turns out the name of the canyon is Sandthrax and it's kind of a renowned like X-rated canyon. And he's, I've been coaching and teaching canyoneering for over a decade and I've never gone down that canyon. And you're telling me from the bottom crux, you up climbed the whole thing. He's like, I, I don't want to compliment you at all because you're an idiot. Right. You and your friends are idiots. Like you should have known better. Um, like what a stupid thing to do, but also, holy shit, that's badass. I thought, <laughs> yeah, dude, right. Wow. Dude, you need to write a book. Have you ever considered that? You know, you're not the first person that that's floated that ship my way of, uh, hey, dude, you should <laughs> put a book together. Not just because of all of your experiences. That's obviously one part of it, but you're a very good storyteller. You Thank have you. The, you have the, yeah, you have the, the, the transformative experience. You, you make people hang on what's the next thing that's going to happen. You don't give away too much. You go very slowly. It's good stuff. Thanks. I Thanks. Yeah, I, like I said, I'd never actually tried to tell that story. Um, yeah.
Yeah, no, you crushed that, dude. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, let's see. What else do I have here? Dude, I have so many like things that we haven't even touched on. We're already at an hour, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. We can always do a part two. There is a couple things that I wanted to touch on before we ended, and then I have a couple Instagram questions as well from when I from when I asked uh, people, my followers, to to get some questions. So I guess one of my questions for you is you had that uh, giant car accident, and, and how old were you at that time? Uh, it would have been 25, 25 and a half. Yeah, basically just about 25 and a half years old. 25 and a half. I hang okay, out with so- kids. You have to let me count the halves. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Now, and that was, you were, you were, kind of knee deep into you you did like iron mans if i don't if i remember correctly iron mans and things like that and and was that prior to this yep so prior to the car accident i was very into iron man i was running marathons running a few ultras but my primary focus was uh, i'd qualified for a couple half iron man world championships between when i started training for them in 2012 after i got out of college and 2014 turn of 2015 like had a really great 2014 season at the 70.3 ironman level half ironman qualified for a couple world championships there and was just like rounding the corner where i had this insane winter of training i put in like 100 plus training hours just in february of of uh, 2015 alone just like workouts going great feeling invincible feeling on a whole nother level able to rip off like 130 140 mile bike rides and then go for a run and just be like well cool. I feel great. It's like, this is the year, like 2015 is the year. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for some full Ironmans and take them seriously, like actually race them, not just finish. I'd finished a couple, but I'd never been able to race where it's like, I'm truly racing all the way through Mm -hmm. to the the line. And it's like, this is the year I'm going to be on that level this year. I could like feel it. I could sense it. Like I could see it in the numbers. And yeah, I went on a hundred, 140 mile bike ride there that first Sunday of May and that uh, Wednesday I couldn't get my own drink of water. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. So as athletes and especially endurance athletes, I know in myself, I am hundred percent addicted to endorphins. If I don't get my endorphin fix every day in some way, it can be, it can be a recovery workout or whatever, but if I don't get it in some way, I'm crabby, I'm moody, I'm crabby, and I'm just not fun to be around. So when you had that accident and you're coming off of these huge mileage weeks and everything. And now, I mean, you're in a hospital bed. What, how did you cope with that? Like, because I believe for me, like doing exercise and things like that, that's like how I, that's how I help my mental health every day, right? You take that away and I've been injured, not like that, but I've been injured where I can't do the things I wanna do and I get like pretty depressed from it. What was that like for you? And what did you find as an alternative coping skill during that time? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was. 100% 100% the same way at, at, at that age. It was like all my friend groups were swim friends, bike friends, run friends. All my coping me- mechanisms were like, get pissed off, go on a tempo run. Exactly. Run hard until you can't run hard anymore. Exactly, and then simultaneously, bro. you can't be angry anymore. So like my coping mechanisms were built around physical movement. And so I totally get that and feel that. And then also like just the general a- agitation and malaise from even just taking like tapering, right? It was difficult back then uh-huh. to, to, yep. to execute a proper taper and not do something yep. stupid because I couldn't sit still. Like that was all very, very real. And so yeah, going from, I think it was a mindset shift going from like carrying the difficult burden of full-time teaching and training as if I was a professional Ironman athlete. 
how do I walk through this challenge and set back, not just successfully, but as the man I care to be um, in, in accordance with my values, with hope and belief and optimism and a forward aim like I've always had, believing that I can go out and do big things, that I'll get back to it. And so a lot of the mindset was like what my mind was focused on was how is my headspace? How am I managing my headspace? How am I thinking about this in this moment? Like sort of that self-check, that metacognition, like a huge amount of my effort was just constantly double checking myself and thinking about how I was thinking and like catching myself getting caught in negative loops and spiraling emotionally, spiraling into depression or doubt or whatever it may be. And like catching that and going, nope, like this, this is what we're focused on this little thing do, do this little task. Um, and I mean, very quickly after they released me from the hospital, I would get like, at first when my girlfriend was still with me, actually that's something I don't talk about much. My significant other at the time who had been together for about five years, um, also ended up getting into the graduate program that we'd always talked about. You know, if she got into it, like that was probably an okay reason. Cause it's like, I didn't want to go live there. It was overseas. I was like, I don't really want to go live there. I really am plugged in here. Like if this happens, it's totally okay. If we go our separate ways, um, cause we're young and we shouldn't hold each other, hold each other back. Um, and shouldn't, you know, we're not in a place where giving up manifesting your dreams seems like the right decision. Um, and we kind of had that agreement, but then she got into the program, like as I'm still laid up in the, in the chair, you know, and not able to move. And so eventually I was like hobbling my own ass around on crutches when I shouldn't have been with nine broken ribs, two fractures in my shoulder and a completely shredded ACL and LCL that had to be surgically replaced and among other things. But I would go to the pool. I would hobble, hobble my broken, my broken ass out to the little truck that I had at the time and drive to the pool. And even with the broken ribs crackling, as I would pull with my right arm, uh, I would swim more miles than I did even when I was training for Ironman, um, just to keep some form of fitness, just to like find a way to, to fight the malaise, to feel a sense of power and growth and purpose, something I could still go out and do. And it's like, ribs are going to heal anyways. It's like, we breathe on them when they're in my head. I'm like, how much more is it? Sure. Maybe it'll slow down the healing by two weeks and I'll have painful ribs for two extra weeks, but I get to swim um, and stay fit in some way. And so I just started swimming and then, you know, that was the segue that kind of kept me moving. So then when I was able to hike around and walk around, uh, I did that. And then hiking led to mountains and bigger mountains. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, man. I can't imagine that. I, I bet though, that you inspired quite a few people when you were going in there and swimming, like walking in there and crutches and stuff and just freaking <laughs> people are probably like looking at you like, who is this guy? Oh, what is going on? Yeah. Imagine being that lifeguard. This right. guy comes yeah, in no kidding. beat to heck and like pulls this giant plastic booty over his whole like knee surgery and all that and just gets in the pool and you're like he's still swimming yeah he's it's been 90 minutes he's still swimming yeah, i know dude yeah oh i guarantee you were, you're swimming better than i than i can right now dude oh my god i've been trying i've been trying to learn it's that's another level that's an, that's another frontier for me i is conquering that yeah would you ever be interested you may have already done this before but you've probably heard of those picnics yeah no i've i've established two of them uh, oh you on, have yeah, one on Mount Shasta. I was the first person to establish the Shasta picnic. And then the one that I'm the most proud of was I added a picnic to Yosemite. Um, and it's it's another one of those, like as far as like a masterpiece creation, in my opinion, since I have this background in multi-sport, 
as far as like my best ever one day route, Yosemite picnic, hands down, you start at the foot of El Cap, you bike all the way up to Tenaya Lake, which by itself is like an iconic lake swim. You know, you don't even have to look ahead. You don't have to sight ahead because you can just, every time you breathe to the side, you just have these domes of rock sticking out around you. And so it's just magnificent. And then you, you do the Tuolumne triple crown, which is a Tenaya peak the mile long razor ridge of Mathis crest and then uh, the Uber classic cathedral peak, um, which is kind of like an, the iconic peak of Tuolumne Meadows. So you link those three together and then you run back, swim back across to your bike and you rip back down to El Cap. It's, it's, <laughs> it's baller. It's full on. It's cool. <laughs> Just rip down. So it's downhill. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah there's still, there's still 2000 feet of climbing on the way back down. Cause uh-huh. you kind of drop and then climb and then do yeah. your final drop. But it's like, you drop like 6,000. <laughs> just, uh, <rip. laughs> just, well, you don't even have to worry about traffic because you are going as fast as traffic. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great. You're just like, you're just like, <laughs> hope some like slow rv doesn't end up in front of you where you're like okay do we just do we we pass the rv on the double blind (laughs) right right right. oh my gosh okay well that's awesome man that that is something i'm very interested in is those picnics well okay so i'll wrap up here quickly with the i i call it a i call it the 30 second drill this is my this is my instagram my instagram question so i have three questions for them we'll give actually we'll go 60 seconds or less we'll go 60 seconds or less on these Thanks for the padding. Okay. So, so it's gotta be concise. Okay. That's what makes it fun though. That's what's what going to be hard. That's going to be hard for me if people couldn't yeah. tell already at this point in the show. <laughs> no. So Alyssa Woolridge asks, what is your favorite peak and favorite mountain range? Oof. I'm going to say one of my all time favorite memories is in the Cascades doing Bonanza Peak. Mm. And it's not just Bonanza, like Bonanza by itself is amazing, but including the Bonanza Dark Traverse, so it's actually two peaks, but like doing that traverse between those two peaks in the position you're Mm. in, with the view you have, with everything you had to do to get in there, like all that combined, that's a pretty special day. Uh, Yeah, so I'll go with that. Bonanza, so what about mountain range? Um, Cascades? Yeah, probably. I'll probably still give it to the the North Cascades. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. There's there's something special. They might not be as tall as the 14ers or you know the 13ers in Wyoming or any of that. But man, talk about some beautiful glaciated peaks, dude. I I, I hesitate saying this on a podcast, but most underrated national park in the U.S. In my opinion, I could give you that. Yeah, I'll, let let's go ahead and throw ourselves under the bus. I'll I'll agree with you there. Yeah. yeah right. Awesome. Great answer. Okay, number two. This comes from some underscore creep underscore just. All right. I I thought this is a good question. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done before a big effort that could have ruined it? Hmm, this is a good question. You know, you know, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go super old school here. For my whole life I've had an iron gut. And for in high school, like obviously it's easy to do dumb things. And so before running a 5K, I don't think it was a particularly important race um, other than some of our district schools were there. And so we were supposed to see how our team lined up against their team. And we were going back and forth on the bus and somebody's like, I, you, I bet you couldn't eat a, a, a can of chili before a race. So I buy a can <laughs> of chili and I pound an entire spicy can of chili right before, <laughs> right before a 5K. Oh, that was painful. And yes, the wheels did come off the bus and the team ranking <laughs> suffered because of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude. Oh, dude. That's great. Whole can of chili. Whole can. Whole can. Spicy too. Wasn't the mild. <laughs> Whole can of chili. Wheels came off the bus. Dude. Love it. Okay, that was a great question. Okay, so last one here. 
Michael Vert asks, this is a good question too. What, what mobility work do you do when you're doing so much volume? I guess in terms of, yeah, like strength work, that type of stuff. Man, where to answer this. So going back into knowing, know thyself, you know, they say know thyself going way back. I was the kid that even being coming from a family that were fairly muscular, were fairly stocky built. It's easy for us to put on muscle mass, which is another part of this equation of know thyself. Sure. Um, I put on muscle weight pretty, pretty easy. At least I did. Now that I'm in my thirties, my I'm getting halfway through my thirties. Now I'm starting to have to stare down my strategies that I've been able to have as assumptions my entire life sure. where it's like, Oh, I don't really have to lift weights. Cause if I lift weights too much, much, I get way too bulky really fast. Okay. And I don't need to do mobility work. Cause the other part of the thing I was going to say is I was the kid that, you know, you know, you know, when we had to do the sit and reach test back in school, uh, the V sit or whatever, yeah, yeah, oh, where yeah. you'd like sit and push the thing back and see oh, what yeah. number you could get, how flexible you oh, were. Yeah. I could push that thing all the way to the back, move my hands to the side and go past the back limit of the measuring uh, device. So it's like, I could just lay straight down onto my shins. Like I've always oh, been flexible. Yeah, nobody, always. nobody respects anybody that can do anything. <laughs> high school. So yeah, I was like always hypermobile. And so it was like, well, I, you know, all the studies say you don't want excessive range of motion. So it's right. kind of the opposite for me compared to like a lot of guys who are under mobile. It was like, oh, mm. I shouldn't stretch because if I do, I'm actually increasing my risk of joint injury. Mm. Um, so again, for the longest time, I've been like, cool, I'll like do target pressure point stuff like targeted mm -hmm. active release or passive release techniques, you know, like mm -hmm. take a, a softball or a baseball and dig it into a knot um, mm -hmm. or, you know, a middle of a muscle body to release um, some built up tension or a cramp or whatever it is. But I didn't, never included like foam rolling, never included stretching um, because it was like, oh, I didn't need it. But now again, like in my thirties, suddenly it's like, whoa, actually I'm, I'm not as flexible as I used to be. So I'm staring down the barrel of this gun. Like maybe it's time to start strength training. Maybe it's time to have a mobility routine. Uh, yeah. Cause otherwise if I let it draw out till I'm in my forties, I might already be behind the, uh, the curve ball. So there's uh, my, sorry, couldn't, couldn't fit it in a minute. I empathize. I, I also am someone that puts on muscle extremely quick. I know, it's so hard. We, we suffer. I know. It's so bad. I know. Right. I get that. Get that. I know. I'm like, pity us. I'm if you're like, listening this far, pity us. Like it's so hard. We look at a weight set and then it's just, boom, it's just like shredding. Through our dirt. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is. It is a freaking problem when you're trying to like lose a little bit or I don't even know if lose weight is the word, but like, you're just kind of trying to slim down a little bit for some of these objectives, you know? And you're like, Hey, I touched that weight and I'm freaking boom. You know, it's weird, man. But <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, well, in college, in college, it was really bad. I'll just tell one more fun story. I I got yeah, in yeah. With some some guys who were like, "Oh, we're gonna lift hard through the winter." I'm like, "Cool, that sounds fun. Like, whatever." And it's gonna be my first track season with the track team uh, collegiately the the next season in the spring. And so I kind of lift hard. I especially like get into like deadlift and like leg press and all this stuff. At one point, I put up 702 pounds on the leg press. Um, and so anyways, roll into day one and I'm sitting with the other distance runners, right? And you know what collegiate distance runners look like. Look and like. So there's this guy with fucking chiseled quads, just the size yeah. of trees sitting next to all these like six foot, 235 yep. pound distance runners. And the coach like looks at me and goes, you sitting in the right place, son? I'm just like, oh man, I screwed up. You should be outside linebacker over there. Freaking <laughs> yeah, dude. No, I, I'm the same way, bro. I got the same, the big quads, same thing, man. And you know, you know what I think it helps us with though? Well, obviously it helps you with a bunch of things, but you know what it helps me with? I feel like is the downhill. Having muscular quads, I feel like I am above average going downhill. 
for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's because of the impact maybe is, is absorbed more by the muscle. I'm not sure, but that's what I've seen running with people. I've observed that. Yeah. And then just yeah. injury proofness. Like I feel like a lot of my friends get laid up more often than I do right. trying to move on the same terrain. It's just, I could right. sort of more tissue to absorb the abuse. So no, I think it has its benefit. It really helps me drive a big, a big ring on the bike that, that I love. I was a, I was a big ring crusher uh, mm. during Ironman, like all these people spinning at that, like proper 180s or whatever mm. it is. Meanwhile, I'm over there just like ripping at <laughs> you know, 40, 40 revolutions per minute and the big ring just <laughs> bro. I love it. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so fun, dude. First of all, I want to put a comma in this podcast. Cause I want to have you on again. I have so many questions that we didn't even get to still, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Where can people find what you're going to be up to next? I'm going to be posting a lot of stuff on Instagram coming up about the Pico de Orizaba infinity loop. Um, the film we're releasing called journey to infinity. Mm. It's, you know, the perfect second chapter to a uh, journey to 100, which is about climbing the Washington's hundred tallest peaks. So we'll be releasing that October 1st. So people should follow uh, me at Jason Hardrath on Instagram. Um, I'm going to be releasing that with a filmmaker named Kevin Issa. So yeah, they can find the information they need there. There you go. Yeah. You can also email me the old fashioned way. I have a website, jasonhardrath.com. Just send me an email. If you don't like social media, I enjoy answering questions about mountains and records and FKTs and just about yeah. any adventure you can think of. 